Chapter Six of Inside the Lines by Earl Biggers and Robert Ritchie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Fugitive. No, madam does not know me, but she must see me. Oh, I know she will see me. Tell her, please, it is a girl from New York, all alone in Paris, who needs her help. The butler looked again at the card the visitor had given him. Quick suspicion flashed into his tired eyes, the same suspicion that had all Paris mad. Gerson, Mademoiselle Gerson. That name, excuse me if I say it, that name is... It sounds German, yes. Haven't I had that told to me a thousand times these last few days? The girl's shoulders drooped limply, and she tried to smile, but somehow failed. But it's my name, and I'm an American, been an American twenty-two years. Please, please. Madam, the ambassador's wife, she's overwhelm we's work. The butler gave the door an insinuating push. Jane Gerson's patent leather boot stopped it. She made a quick rummage in her bag, and when she withdrew her hand, a bit of bank paper crinkled in it. The butler pocketed the note with perfect legerdemain, smiled a formal thanks, and invited Jane into the dark, cool hallway of the embassy. She dropped on a skin-covered couch, utterly spent. Hours she had passed, moving foot by foot in an interminable line, up to a little wicket in a steamship office, only to be told, every boat's sold out. Other grilling hours she had passed similarly before the express office, to find, at last, that her little paper booklet of checks was as worthless as a steamship folder. Food even lacked, because the money she offered was not acceptable. For a week she had lived in the seething cauldron that was Paris in wartime, harried, buffeted, trampled and stampeded, a chip on the froth of madness. This day, the 3rd of August, found Jane Gerson summoning the last remnants of her flagging nerve to the supreme endeavour. Upon her visit to the embassy depended everything, her safety, the future she was battling for. But now, with the first barrier passed, she found herself suddenly faint and weak. "'Madam, the ambassador's wife will see you. Come!' The butler's voice sounded from afar off, though Jane saw the gleaming buckles at his knees very close. The pounding of her heart almost choked her as she rose to follow him. Down a long hall and into a richly furnished drawing-room, now strangely transformed by the presence of desks, filing cabinets, and busy stenographers. The click of typewriters and rustle of papers gave the air of an office at top pressure. The butler showed Jane to a couch near the portier and withdrew. From the tangle of desks at the opposite end of the room, a woman with a kindly face crossed, with hand extended. Jane rose, grasped the hand, and squeezed convulsively. "'You are—' "'Yes, my dear, I am the wife of the ambassador. Be seated, and tell me all your troubles. We are pretty busy here, but not too busy to help, if we can.' Jane looked into the sympathetic eyes of the ambassador's wife, and what she found there was like a draught of water to her parched soul. 
the elder woman, smiling down into the white face, wherein the large brown eyes burned unnaturally bright, saw a trembling of the lips instantly conquered by a rallying will, and she patted the small hand hearteningly. "'Dear lady,' Jane began, almost as a little child, "'I must get out of Paris, and I've come to you to help me. Every way is closed except through you.' so many hundreds like you poor girl all want to get back to the home country and we are so helpless to aid everyone the lady of the embassy thought as she cast a swift glance over the slender shoulders and diminutive figure beneath them that here indeed was a babe in the woods the blatant self-assured tourist demanding assistance from her country's representative as a right she knew also the shifty, slow-eyed demivierge, who wanted no questions asked, but such a one as this little person. "'You see, I am a buyer for Hildebrand's store in New York,' Jane was rushing breathlessly to the heart of her tragedy. "'This is my very first trip as buyer, and it will be my last unless I can get through the lines and back to New York. I have seventy of the very last gowns from Poiret, from Paquin and Worth, you know what they will mean in the old town back home, and I must, just simply must, get them through. You understand? With them, Hildebrand can crow over every other gown shop in New York. He can be supreme, and I will be, well, I will be made. The kindly eyes were still smiling, and the woman's heart, which is unchanged even in the breast of an ambassador's wife, was leaping to the magic lure of that simple word, gowns. But, but the banks refuse to give me a cent on my letter of credit. The express office says my checks, which I brought along for incidentals, cannot be cashed. The steamship companies will not sell a berth in the steerage even, out of Havre, or Antwerp, or Southampton. Everything gobbled up. You can't get trunks on an aeroplane, or I'd try that. I just don't know where to turn, and so I've come to you. You must know some way out." Jane unconsciously clasped her hands in supplication, and upon her face, flushed now with the warmth of her pleading, was the dawning of hope. It was as if the girl were assured that once the ambassador's wife heard her story, by some magic she could solve the difficulties. The older woman read this trust, and was touched by it. "'Have you thought of catching a boat at Gibraltar?' she asked. "'They are not so crowded. People haven't begun to rush out of Italy yet.' "'But nobody will honour my letter of credit,' Jane mourned. "'And, besides, all the trains south of Paris are given up to the mobilization. Nobody can ride on them but soldiers.' The lady of the embassy knit her brows for a few minutes, while Jane anxiously scanned her face. Finally she spoke. The ambassador knows a gentleman, a large-hearted American gentleman here in Paris, who has promised his willingness to help in deserving cases by advancing money on letters of credit. And with money there is a way, just a possible way, of getting to Gibraltar. Leave your letter of credit with me, my dear. Go to the police station in the district where you live, and get your pass through the lines just as a precaution against the possibility of your being able to leave to-night. Then come back here and see me at four o'clock. Perhaps, just a chance." Hildebrand's buyer seized the hands of the embassy's lady ecstatically, 
tumbled words of thanks crowding to her lips. When she went out into the street, the sun was shining as it had not shone for her for a dreary, terrible week. At seven o'clock that night, a big Roman-nosed automobile, long and low and powerful as a torpedo on wheels, pulled up at the door of the American embassy. Two bulky osier baskets were strapped on the back of its tonneau. In the rear seat were many rugs. A young chap with a sharp, shrewd face, an American, sat behind the wheel. The door of the embassy opened, and Jane Gerson, swathed in veils, and with a grey duster buttoned tight about her, danced out. Behind her followed the ambassador, the lady of the embassy, and a bevy of girls, the volunteer aides of the overworked representative's staff. Jane's arms went about the ambassador's wife in an impulsive hug of gratitude and good-bye. The ambassador received a hearty handshake for his God speed you. A waving of hands and fluttering of handkerchiefs, and the car leaped forward. Jane Gerson leaned far over the back, and, through cupped hands, she shouted, I'll paint Hildebrand's sign on the rock of Gibraltar. Over bridges and through outlying faubourgs sped the car until the barrier was gained. There crossed bayonets denying passage, an officer with a pocket flash pawing over pass and passport, a curt dismissal, and once more the motor purred its speed song, and the lights of the road flashed by. More picket lines, more sprouting of armed men from the dark, and flashing of lights upon official signatures. On the heights appeared the hump-shouldered bastions of the great outer forts, squatting like huge fighting beasts of the night, ready to spring upon the invader. Bugles sounded. The white arms of searchlights swung back and forth across the arc of night in their ceaseless calisthenics. A murmuring and stamping of many men and beasts was everywhere. The ultimate picket line gained and passed. The car leaped forward with the bound of some freed animal, its twin headlights feeling far ahead the road to the south. Behind lay Paris, the city of dread. Ahead, far ahead, where the continent is spiked down with a rock, Gibraltar. Beyond that, the safe haven from this madness of the millions, America. Jane Gerson stretched out her arms to the vision, and laughed shrilly. End of chapter 6